From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Diabetes is a seventh leading cause of death in the United States and now affects more than 100 million people who have either diabetes or pre-diabetes. Just as alarming, the number of children and young adults with type 2 diabetes is on the rise. On today's program, we'll discuss diabetes and prevention with a Mayo Clinic expert. If you kept your blood sugars normal since you were diagnosed, those people who kept their blood sugars normal, their chances of dying now are no different than a non-diabetic person. But they were treated early on for a long time. That's the crux of this is early and effectively. Also on the program, how pharmacogenomics may hold the key to helping people quit smoking. And Dr. Tom Shines will join me as co-host as we learn more about epilepsy. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 30 million Americans have diabetes. That's more than 9% of the U.S. population. Diabetes means there is too much sugar or glucose in the blood, which can lead to serious health problems such as increased risk of cardiovascular disease, nerve and kidney damage, and problems with the eyes and feet. Along with the health problems comes the cost. On average, a person diagnosed with diabetes spends almost $8,000 a year on health care costs related to their disease. November is Diabetes Awareness Month. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist and diabetes expert, and I would say our favorite endocrinologist oh, and diabetes expert, Dr. Robert Rizza. Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it definitely deserves its own month, doesn't it, Diabetes Awareness it does. I mean, the primary reason is that, as you were saying, the, the unfortunately, it's a very, very common disease, and as you're alluding to, the cost, but even more, the cost in human suffering. And the reason diabetes awareness is so important, it doesn't have to happen. I mean, because diabetes is a classic disease. You take care of it, you do not have problems, or, or you do, but very rarely. And you don't take care of it, awful things happen. So by being aware, by knowing what you need to do, you can take care of yourself and your loved ones. So what are the class? classifications of diabetes, the different types. Well, that's right, different types. It's referred to as type 1 and type 2. And whenever medical professionals refer to things as type, that usually means they don't know what they're talking about. Hold on, there was just a type 3 I heard about. What's that? Well, this is type 3, type 1 and type 2. And what they are is type 1 and type 2. So type 1 is a a disease in which your autoimmune system destroys the insulin-secreting cells in your pancreas. They're called beta cells. So that's an immune system. Type 2 is a disease in which a variety of factors, combination of environment and genes, conspire so that you're no longer able to secrete enough insulin. And the operative word is enough. Now, you may be secreting a bunch more insulin than a non-diabetic person, but you may be heavy, you may be sedentary, so your body needs more. But for some reason, your pancreas can't compensate. Now, people are alluded to type 3, what you're saying is that turns 21st out... 21st century thing? Well, it's not a 21st century, <laughs> but it's a very old disease. Is what, what's happened is that it's very evident that people who, you know, say you're in your 50s or 60s, you're overweight, you develop what you would think would be typically type 2, but a subset of those people actually have antibodies to these beta cells. That's called a late Late no one said diabetes, the adult. Make up all this stuff. So some people thought they should call it type 3, because there are clearly these, these, these crosses. Now, type 2, which is referred to, again, as the people who, the classical thing is the older group, although, you know, you can get this when you're younger, unfortunately, if you're very overweight. 
that these people commonly, you know, will have this genetic preposition, but as long as they only mean lean and fit or don't gain weight, they don't get to this disease. That's why it's so complicated when you talk about different types. There are some really, truly, you know, so-called genetic one gene, but these are very, very rare. This, these are the kind of things off to the side, but the common ones are so-called type 1 immune, type 2. And type 1 used to be called juvenile onset diabetes, but 30% of the people who have type 1 diabetes are over age of 30. So if you got Type 1 when you're 90, and they call it juvenile, and said that was pretty silly. That was why it was changed to type 1 and type 2. So, Dr. Riz, I thought that uh, blood sugars were a good thing. For example, if you're an athlete, we're told to eat carbohydrates, get blood sugars, but clearly that's not the so case. So, Sands, I don't know who tells you to eat carbohydrates. <laughs> you're an athlete. What you need when you're an athlete is eat calories. And so when you're an athlete, yes. what you're doing is, is your muscle is burning glucose, stored glucose, which is called glycogen, you deplete that very rapidly, particularly if you're any kind of a distance or, or, or prolonged. Then you start burning free fatty acids. But the key crux, I keep saying the word burning. You know, so as long as you're burning the calories, that's not a problem. Okay. So if you happen to be a, a lumberjack and you're burning 7,000 calories a day, you can eat all the fat, all the carbohydrate you want. But most of us are not burning that many calories. And so, therefore, we don't, we're eating more uh-huh. calories than we're burning. See, the problem is he's a soccer player and he's gotten hit in the head too many times. <laughs> I think that might be the problem. What is pre, is that the problem, Dr. Kecker? No. No, okay. <laughs> what is pre-diabetes? Well, well, pre-di- That's also a kind of a 21st century thing, isn't it? What well, is? So this came, ba- came about in 1997, you know, when, when the group of people around the world got together and said, well, what's the definition of diabetes? I mean, when, when do you have diabetes? You know, and so the definition of diabetes is that when your fasting blood sugar is over 126 milligrams per DL or your hemoglobin A1C, this is a different kind of test, you know, is, is over 6.5% or your two-hour glucose tolerance test is over 200. Now, you don't have to remember these numbers. Of course, obviously, you won't. And the reason those numbers were chosen is that there were large numbers of photographs taken of people in blood sugars around the world, Cairo, United States, you know, different parts. And it's around that number when you're first beginning seeing microscopic changes mm. in the eyes. So that was said, okay, 126 is, is diabetes. It's like a blood pressure 140. Why is, your hy- why is it hypertension when it's 140? Well, because if you're over 140, you begin to have more strokes. So over 126, you begin to have these things. Pre-diabetes was 100 to 125 because it was clear that even though you didn't have these retinal findings, you already were not secreting enough insulin. So you were on your way unless something was done. So the definition of diabetes was already there was some evidence of damage. Pre-diabetes, if, and if you, if you treat it, of course, that stops. Pre-diabetes was if you didn't do something, you were going to move down that line. It's the warning light. Right. It's a predisposition. It's not a warning. I mean, be, right, different words. Predisposition yeah. doesn't mean you're going to get it. Mm-hmm. It just means that you, you've got the wrong side of these numbers right now. Now, Dr. Rizzi, you alluded to the early onset, the juvenile, the autoimmune t- type, uh, type, one, type. Type 1. So um, what are the other causes for uh, or risk factors for diabetes? Well, so, again, type 1 is an autoimmune, and there really are no risk factors. That's the irony of this thing. You know, you can be lean and fit. You can be, you know, old, young, whatever. It, and, and nobody knows why in the world. Why does your pancreas? Why does your body decide to start killing mm-hmm. these particular cells in your pancreas? It leaves everything else alone. Or they are predisposed to some other immune problems. So there aren't really any predisposing factors for that. You know, unless a family history. If both parents have type one, there are certain statistics you have a greater chance. But you still have like a 95, 90 percent chance you won't. You know, but of course it's not like 
0.001. Type 2 is a different gonna, story. Are we ever going to be a point where you can cure type 1? Yes. Or are we just getting better at treating it? No, no, well, no, well, I mean both. So, it's, oh, I guess not both because that's an either or, sure. isn't it? just. Yeah. I know. Not just. Mean, yeah. We are getting better in treating it. But there are a variety of, 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 of medicines and approaches that can stop this immune. The problem is, this immune destruction, the problem is that the treatments currently are, are relatively toxic. You know, and so that, yeah, you can give you, the, they're literally the drugs you use for transplantation, but they're very toxic to take for a lifetime. But there's a lot of research going on understanding what, why are these, you know, cells attacking. And there are a lot of strategies coming up that don't involve toxic drugs that will stop that. So I think the answer is, will we ever? Yes. When? I don't think anyone knows that. But there is hope. So I interrupted your answer to Dr. Gakar's question. Well, the answer is, you know, for the other predisposing factors, is there anything that makes your body need more insulin? You know, so if, you, if you're overweight or obese, if you're sedentary, for certain ethnic groups, for some reason, seem mm-hmm. to have greater predisposition because mm-hmm. they probably have greater body fat, you know, for a given level, which may have been something very good for survival 10 years gone by. There are other factors, you know, that, you know, a history of gestational diabetes. There are other factors, and these are sort of the gestalt to go on. But it's primarily for most of us, it's, you know, overweight, sedentary, and if you happen to have the wrong ethnic background, you may have a greater chance. But even then, if you stay lean, you don't get this disease. It's, it's, it's primarily a disease which is being driven by sedentary lifestyle and obesity. We've been talking about diabetes with Dr. Robert Rizzo. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk treatment options and prevention. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking with diabetes expert Dr. Robert Rizza. During the commercial break, the two of you continued our conversation, and you said something, Dr. Rizza, that I think we should uh, bring to our listeners. <laughs> what I was saying is that one of the conundrums about diabetes is why now? I mean, what's, mm-hmm. why is this happening? Mm-hmm. I was just pointing out that in the 1920s, 19. You know, 30s, you know, 100 years ago, the prevalence was of diabetes was 2, 3, 4, 5 percent. It was, it was a rare disease. Now it's 25, 30, 40 percent, depending on how old you are. Our genes haven't changed in 100 years. Well, they have, but not much. What's happened is, is it's, it's the modern lifestyle. Is that we all have this genetic predisposition, not one gene, but a polygenetic, and then all of a sudden we do things to our bodies, you know, that make us need to create more insulin, and certain people cannot. You know, but that's why this disease was rare in the past, and it's not not not. It's a disaster now. Disaster. In fact, the United States is relatively well off compared to. I'm referring to not getting this disease. Certain parts of the world, the prevalence is getting to the 50, 60 percent. You know, it's just yes. it's an epidemic. Wow. For the same reasons, because people are getting sedentary and gaining weight. Well, so the flip to that is you talked about the modern lifestyle. More and more people, I think, are working out than, say, they used to. So that would go against them getting diabetes. But yet, as you said, it's it's going up. So. But, and actually, but you're right. Because remember, part of this is you look at the numbers for obesity, because sure. you guys are more into this than I am. You know, the numbers for obesity actually are leveling off, and that's very heartening. Yes. You know, you look around, and particularly the younger generation is beginning to you see people out walk and move and you don't have to run right. you know anything but running's good you know but also you can see this almost it's almost as if people you know mother's father said not my kids hmm. yes how how is it that so many people uh, are undiagnosed how does it go undiagnosed or how are people diagnosed let's start there yeah well the, as i said the diagnosis is a fasting blood sugar 126 a hemoglobin a1c etc etc so test. just a blood test yeah a blood test so the point is if you don't give a blood test you don't have any symptoms 
you know, so if your blood sugar happens to be 126, you, 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 the idea of, of losing weight, of thirst, you know, and, you know, getting various infections, yeah, that's when your blood sugars are sky high, two, 300. You do not get that, you know, with blood sugars of 126, and yet the damage is already beginning. So you have to have a blood test. And that is why the American Diabetes Association and the other organizations, this is an easy thing, a blood test. And if you have elevated blood sugar, then there are things you can do to stop it. But you've got to know. So, but that's getting a blood test. Well, what are the symptoms of diabetes? There are no symptoms until your blood sugars get sky high. Okay. You know, you, you urinate frequently, you get up and go to the bathroom just because your sugar is so high it's spilling in the urine. Yes. But that's really high. Uh-huh. You know, that's how it used to be diagnosed. That's what diabetes mellitus means, you know, sweet urine. You know, but the thing is that by then, I mean, and you can have high blood sugars, but damage is being done. And again, not that if your sugars were high, if you treat it properly, as we'll get into a second, you can get this thing down. But for preventing this early on, you need to have a blood test. And also, but an eye exam can check, can catch it too, right? Right. If, and that's another important thing is because if you already have damage done and, and the retina, you know, the ophthalmologist who see this, an optometrist who do dilated eye exams, but you want a dilated eye exam, can already see damage being done in the vessels. So, of course, that's the time to get you to the proper person, to your endocrinologist or somebody to help you take care of this. But you don't want to wait till you already have damage. I mean, but there, that is correct. You can see things. You can see kidneys, kidney problems if you have on a kidney test or a variety of things, nerve problems, pain, numbness that can be coming up. But these are the things when you already have damage and you want to prevent that. You want to do something before that. You know, this, this hits very home to me because my father has, has non-insulin-dependent diabetes yeah. diagnosed late in life yeah. and was only diagnosed from a, an eye exam. Right. Had, otherwise, had no symptoms, was very right. active. So hence the question. And, so, and that's a common problem is that people don't, because they feel well, they feel fine. Yes. And, you, and that's, why you want, that's why you want to know what your blood pressure is. You can't tell when your blood pressure is high, when you want to know what your cholesterol is. I mean, that, that's, that is what this is. That's why people are living longer. Living, you don't want to live longer. You want to live better. That's why they're living better, because you can treat these things if you know, but you got to do the test. Let's talk about treatment options. How have those changed, and what's new? Well, I mean, there are a variety of things that are new. It's been dramatic, which is happening, is that, again, research, because this is what this is all about, is gaining some insight as to why these insulin-secreting cells are unable to create insulin. So there are certain certain drugs, so-called GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide-1. You know, we doctors make this stuff up. (laughs) But this is a hormone that your pancreas normally secretes, your pancreas, your intestine normally secretes. And it tells the pancreas, hey, wake up, here's some food, secrete insulin. Problem is, it only lasts for two minutes. Mm-hmm. So, so companies have made either enzymes that inhibit the degradation, so-called DP4 antagonists, or GLP agonists, which are these things can last for days or even weeks. And these have been dramatic. These, these are quite effective. You know, they have their issues, and they're all pros and cons. They're drugs that basically make the kidney pee glucose out. Who would ever have thought that you can mm-hmm. lower your blood sugar by peeing glucose out? But, it, but they work. But they, they, they seem to have unexpected but positive effects on the heart and kidneys. There are other drugs that are very, very good at making the insulin work better in such dynamics that didn't work before that getting into the technical details of letting your doctor, she can give the insulin to you or teach you in a manner much better off for your body. But I also understand you can have the non-insulin-dependent type and then go into insulin we refer type. to a type two, type two, type two sorry, not, not insulin dependent. Type, right. type two into type one. Well, all it is is that is the it is not it's type one. Is what it all boils down to the evolution of type two is your pancreas is progressively losing insulin secretion. That's why you get it when you're 50 instead of when you're 30. I see. But you could be in your 60s and your pancreas kept losing secretion in your 80s and 90s. Now you're not secreting. You're still secreting some, but not much. And this gets into a, you know, sort of a semantic issue about what do you have at that point in time. Uh, speaking of semantics, can diabetes be reversed? 
Well, it, that's probably not the right word to use. No, what well, can? I mean, it's the definition of diabetes is a fasting 126. Sure. You can get your blood sugar 125. Sure. And that actually is really a, a philosophical question is that you now have diabetes. So, for example, by losing weight, you know, bariatric surgery, which is a whole bunch of issues with it, mm-hmm. but it's very helpful for some people, you know, that we refer to the word as remission, we being the medical profession. So there are people who have been on insulin, come off insulin, don't need pills, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, commonly as the years go on, their blood sugars will go back up because they can't screen enough insulin. But what you've done is you've, you've turned the clock back. You know, so there's a whole variety of ways that, indeed, you can turn this clock back and effectively reverse the disease. Well, you can turn the clock back, but you're not going to reverse the damage if you, to your eyes or to your... If you kept your blood sugars normal since you were diagnosed... There is evidence from the so-called diabetes control and complications trial. This was done in, you know, the early 1990s. This was the original randomized study showing if you treat diabetes, it's beneficial. Those people who participated in those trials who kept their blood sugar normal, their chances of dying now are no different than a non-diabetic person. But they were treated early on for a long time. That's the crux of this is early and effectively. So tell us about prevention of diabetes. What uh, What is it that you want people to know during Diabetes Awareness Month? This is prevention of type 2. I want people to know during Diabetes Awareness Month period is take care of yourself, whether you have type 1 or type 2, work with your health care provider, you know, whoever she or he may well be, because, again, this is a team, this is the classic thing. But preventing it is literally stay lean and stay fit, eat well. You know, and, and there are all kinds of crazy diets. Of course, as you can I mean, like most things you realize, if, it, if it's crazy, you know it doesn't make sense. You know, the one thing that makes sense is the so-called Mediterranean diet, repeatedly has been shown, you know, which is basically high complex carbohydrate, low saturated fat, you know, high monounsaturated fat, small amounts of protein, you know, reducing free sugars. It's what, you know, probably what your mother and father, we all were told we're supposed to eat. Mm-hmm. That is the diet, best diet. And calories, of course. You can eat the best food in the world. If you eat too much of it, you'll gain weight. But eat the right amount of the right kinds of food. And what do you see for the future? What do you think is going I mean, the to... The future is trying to understand what makes these insulin-screening cells die. And there's a lot of research, including here at Mayo, understanding that. If you knew how to keep cells from dying, and even more remarkably, people who have type 1, 40, 50 years are still making insulin-screening cells. They're dying. So if you could stop them, basically whatever is killing them, then they could grow their own insulin screening cells back. In addition to regenerative medicine, stem cells, all the exciting things trying to put other insulin cells in. But I think that's where the science is going to be going, is how do you make them live? How do you make them, if you can't do that, how do you make new ones? You know, and then how do you make them work better? And how do you make the insulin work better, so-called insulin resistance? Sure. We've been talking about diabetes during Diabetes Awareness Month with Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Robert Rizza. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rizza. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn how pharmacogenomics could hold the key to helping people quit smoking. And later on in the program, we'll learn about epilepsy from a Mayo Clinic expert. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Opioid pain medication can hook people into addiction quickly. Some worry that emergency departments are a major source for these drugs. One thing that sort of everybody thinks they know about opioids is that in the ED, they give opioids out like candy. 
Not true, says Mayo Clinic's Dr. Molly Jeffrey. She and her colleagues published a study that found opioid prescriptions from the ED are written for a shorter duration and smaller dose than those written elsewhere. They also found that patients with acute pain who receive an opioid prescription in the ED are less likely to progress to long-term use. But what we want to avoid is people having a large prescription and having lots of pills left over. CDC guidelines caution against exceeding a three-day supply or 50 milligrams of morphine equivalent per day for acute pain. Limiting prescriptions to three to seven days It's a good balance. And in other news, let's talk about stuttering. The National Institutes of Health reports that roughly 3 million Americans stutter when they talk. Now, stuttering, also called stammering or childhood onset fluency disorder, is a speech disorder that involves frequent and significant problems with normal fluency and flow of speech. People who stutter know what they want to say, but they have difficulty saying it. Stuttering's common among young children as a normal part of learning to speak. Most kids outgrow it, but in some cases it can persist into adulthood. This type of stuttering can have an impact on self-esteem and interactions with other people. If you're the parent of a child who stutters or worried about it, the doctor or speech-language pathologist can help. They can rule out underlying conditions and help differentiate between the type of stuttering kids outgrow and the type they don't. If you're an adult who stutters, there's help for you, too. Several different approaches are available to treat both both children and adults who stutter. Treatment may not eliminate all stuttering, but it can teach skills that help to make communicating easier. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. People who smoke or use other forms of tobacco are more likely to develop disease and die earlier than people who don't use tobacco at all. While people often worry about what smoking is doing to their health and find it difficult to quit, this is because nicotine is highly addictive and most people don't succeed the first time they try to quit smoking. But after trying different methods, why do so many people still have difficulty quitting smoking? In this day and age of individualized medicine, could our genes hold the key, Dr. Kakar? Could it be? Everything else is down to the genes, Tracy. (laughs) That's right. Here to discuss is the head of the pharmacogenetics lab in the Campbell Family Mental Health Research Institute at the University of Toronto, Dr. Rachel Tyndale. Welcome to the program, Dr. Tyndale. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. It's nice to meet you as well. So is it true genetics plays a role in whether we can successfully quit smoking? Sure. So in all drug dependencies, there's a large heritable risk uh, or a genetic risk in lots of the different phenotypes. So how much you smoke or how long you smoke for or whether you're able to stop smoking. And the area that we've been focusing on is how to identify which people are responding to the different kinds of treatments in the best way, using principally genomics, but also other demographic variables. So, Dr. Tyndale, I I was always taught if you had to quit something, it's where there's a will, there's a way. You can just simply dial it down and and off you go. That's clearly not the case? No. So so no one quits a drug dependency easily, uh, or very few people do. So what we're doing is trying to create the best possible chances for them to quit, so matching the best possible drugs that we have available to the right person. And as you can imagine, people quit smoking at various different points in time. Early January is one key Mm -hmm. point in time where lots of people quit smoking. So what we're trying to do is identify what works best for them. So there's a tobacco addiction gene, or what is it that your research is telling us? 
Sure. So you can imagine, um, as you said in your intro, uh, nicotine is the primary psychoactive drug in tobacco that drives smoking behaviors. And there are two biologically obvious places that we look. One which is that nicotine is broken down in your body or inactivated by a pathway in your body. And so what we found in our early studies was the faster that you inactivated nicotine, the more you smoked. And so that was one of our first sort of biological or genomic um, influences on smoking behaviors. And then the nicotine replacement therapies are also influenced by this same um, enzyme pathway. Another biologically um, plausible and what's turned out to be a useful tool is the nicotinic receptors. So where nicotine binds to in your brain is also genetically variable, and it can also influence how much people smoke, for example. So when you see uh, patients in your clinic, is there a blood test that you're testing for these genes? Sure. So we can do it through either genomics, the standard um, blood or saliva test, and a DNA and a, and a, and a SNP test. One of the other things that we've been working out is how to do a phenotype biomarker. So we can look at, in anybody who's a regular smoker, we can look at the rate of their metabolism by looking at the ratio of some metabolites of nicotine in their body. And so that allows us to do very quick sort of um, biomarker tests as well. So we can either look at the genomics or we can look at the biomarker tests. And so if you have the genes or you don't have the genes, how does that affect your treatment? So what we've done is we've identified that people who are, I'll I'll take the metabolism genes as an example, if people are slow metabolizers, and that's um, probably 30% of Caucasians, but a much higher percentage of other uh, populations, they have much better quit rates just spontaneously. They respond very well to behavioral counseling, but they don't respond very well to bupropion, which is marketed as Zyban in smoking. So they do just as well on behavioral counseling as they do on the drug. So that would be a drug we wouldn't advise for that population, but they do very well on the nicotine patch. So that so we would give slow metabolizers nicotine patch by preference. Well, the pharmacogenomics piece of it is that any medication, you know, recently we had Dr. Keith Stewart on who said he, from this point forward, isn't going to take a medication until he sees how it affects if he's an over-metabolizer or an under-metabolizer, whether it's a heart medication or thyroid medication, whatever it is. So it makes sense that... Yeah. Uh, uh, tobacco addiction medications would affect you differently, but it also makes sense that then tobacco would affect you. Like maybe you're an over-metabolizer of tobacco, nicotine, and an under-metabolizer. Yeah, so I think I think you're right. In other areas of medicine, the treatment drugs aren't always also the drugs that you're addicted to. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more complicated, or at least we have drugs in the disease that we're studying as well as in the treatment. Um, so you can see differences between slow and fast metabolizers of nicotine from very early stages of, of smoking. So we do cohort studies with children, and we can see very different patterns of acquisition and how much they smoke from very early stages of smoking. And then we can see from the first time that we see serious quit attempts in in adolescence or in early adulthood, we see that the slow metabolizers can quit more readily. So all the way through smoking history, that variation is affecting the behaviors and the exposure and the subsequent diseases associated with tobacco. But they also, these rapid metabolizers, also respond to one of our other drugs, varenicline, very well. 
And so that's been a, a, an encouraging moment is that uh, they have a lot of things that aren't going for them, but we have now found a drug that's very efficacious for them. So Dr. Tyndale, your groundbreaking research is focused on smoking. Has it looked at other areas of addiction? For example, now with the opioid addiction that exists in North America, have you looked at that? Sure. So, so those of us who work in drug dependence are, of course, very very worried and very concerned about the opioid crisis. We have large studies ongoing, both looking at who's at risk for becoming dependent with different types of opioids or analgesics that are used with the hope that we can start to refine pain management a little bit better on the acquisition side and and take care in terms of who's more readily likely to become dependent or, or get into trouble with opiates. But in the more sort of pharmacogenomic side of it, we again have a, a small arsenal of, of treatments, but we're hoping to really optimize those treatments for the individuals and what they're what they've become dependent on. We've been talking about pharmacogenomics and smoking cessation with Dr. Rachel Tyndall. Dr. Tyndall is a research chair of pharmacogenomics at the University of Toronto. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Tyndall. Thank you very much for your interest. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, November is Epilepsy Awareness Month. We'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Epilepsy. You certainly, we've all heard the term. It's a disorder of the central nervous system where nerve cell activity in the brain becomes, well, disrupted, I guess is the best way to put it. And that can cause lots of problems. Seizures for one, periods of unusual behavior or strange sensations, and sometimes even loss of consciousness. According to the Epilepsy Foundation, there are 3 million people in the United States who have epilepsy, and interestingly, 1 in 26 people in the U.S. will develop epilepsy in their lifetime. That's 4 out of 100, approximately. Pretty staggering figures. The good news is that most people with epilepsy can become seizure-free by using medication or, in some cases, surgery. Joining us by phone to discuss epilepsy is Dr. Bill Tatum. Dr. Tatum is a neurologist at the Florida campus of Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Tatum. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Dr. Tatum, everything good in Jacksonville? Oh, everything's wonderful. I tried at the top to uh, explain a little bit about what epilepsy is, mm-hmm. but I'd rather hear it from you in lay terms. When somebody asks you, what is epilepsy? How do you explain? Well, you know, I think you really capped it nicely in terms of outlining some of the demographics of what people expect from the term epilepsy. What I usually tell my patients is that the word epilepsy often invokes a sense of uncomfort or discomfort, if you will. But basically what it is, is as you mentioned, it's a disorder of the brain. And it's the brain's inherent capacity to excessively discharge a group of brain cells. Now, that group of brain cells can be centered in different areas that can lead to corresponding symptoms. As you mentioned, very often this will lead to an episode where somebody has a loss of consciousness. There are many different manifestations. You can see symptoms that range anywhere from staring and being unresponsive, almost as if somebody's having a daydreaming spell. But it can also range to something more serious that people refer to as a grand mal seizure, where they can fall to the ground and actually hurt themselves from jerking uh, parts of the body. Frequently, uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's good news because medication will control these seizures in about two-thirds of cases. When they're not controlled by medication, 
that's when Mayo Clinic usually becomes very proactive in terms of trying to define a treatment that can help individuals, often very young. So uh, 25% of the patients that you see you can't control with medications? About a third. About a third. Yeah, so that's quite a few. And and heretofore, you haven't had uh, very good options if the medication didn't work, but now you do? Well, you know, over the years, we've recently had a great release of newer medications, so it's brought a lot of hope. But still, there's a group of people that just don't seem to respond to medication. And in that particular instance, by the time somebody's failed two good trials of two appropriate medicines, that's when we start to think about other non-medical therapies, including surgery. And tell us about that. Uh, how do you uh, identify those patients? You said they failed twice on, on the best drugs that you have yes, available, yes, yet yes. are still having seizures. The, seed, the type of seizure depended on the part of the brain that's, that's involved. Exactly. So you've got a patient that, that has failed drug treatment. How do you proceed? So, you know, the first thing is, number one, to make sure that they have epilepsy. There's a fair number of people that actually have spells that may be misidentified. Not on purpose, but frequently there's other types of episodes that can look just like uh, epilepsy-associated seizures but are not. So diagnosis is number one. Number two, we have to make sure frequently that they've been evaluated for an underlying cause. Seizures are only a symptom of an underlying brain problem. In some cases, we can't find anything, and things that we do, like the MRI scan of the brain, may come back as perfectly normal. But when somebody's failed two good drugs, they have epilepsy, it may appear in a certain part of the brain that we're able to define well, that's when we talk to them about epilepsy surgery. However, I'd be remiss to say that's the only treatment because there are other treatments as well. We will often use other approaches uh, depending on the type of epilepsy someone has, including a dietary control, Hmm. a low blood sugar treatment. oriented type of diet, or we may use electricity in the form of an electrical device. So there's other causes besides epilepsy, but uh, in essence, when somebody's failed two good drugs, their best chance of becoming seizure-free is through epilepsy surgery. Quite often people will say that there was a child had epilepsy but then outgrew it. What's what's happening when that occurs? So it's a very good question, and it's something that we see less frequently in the adult population than we do in children. But what it refers to is oftentimes a genetically-based epilepsy that is predefined to both appear and disappear at a certain age. Hmm. And so not that they outgrew it per se, but just that there has been a genetically pre-programmed onset and offset for that specific type of epilepsy. I would say also that for those that have seizures that begin in one part of the brain in adulthood, that's unlikely to occur. You know, we've uh, we've heard that you are starting or that you are utilizing something called brain mapping at the Florida campus. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, so it's a very exciting innovation. We've been in the operating room much more in individuals that typically have a known cause. Um, Sometimes with brain tumor, uh, we're able to pinpoint where seizures arise, not only on their MRI, uh, but also doing prolonged EEG monitoring. When they are identified in an area that might be near an area that could be dangerous if it it was removed, 
since we, we don't want to induce any complications that might be just as bad as the seizures themselves, we're doing intraoperative brain mapping. And that brain mapping includes both recording from the brain directly at surgery, but also by providing a small electrical stimulus, we're able to identify areas that are not safe to remove. And in that way, we can provide the surgeon with information that they can I, that they can actually use to approach uh, their surgery and also to extend their surgery to a safe boundary. Okay, so uh, if you've got a brain tumor that that's pressing and causing pressure in the brain, yeah. that could potentially cause a seizure. You take the tumor out. But are you also talking about patients who don't have a tumor yet that they're going to have some kind of surgery and what kind of surgery is that? Yes, we do. And it's easy to understand, I think when you look at an MRI and see a brain tumor, it's not hard to extrapolate that the two are related, seizures and the tumor. Mm-hmm. But we very frequently do use techniques in patients with normal MRIs that do not have a brain tumor. Now, very frequently, that group of patients is often centered in a part of the brain called the temporal lobe. And so we have a great deal of experience in the temporal lobe and in temporal lobe epilepsy. And we have a, a protocol that's set up through Mayo Clinic and all of our enterprise is set up very similarly to offer a combined approach of different testing to identify the site of onset. And when we're sure that we know the site of onset, uh, that's when we start to uh, uh, proceed towards surgery for okay, individuals okay, but that are then, drug resistant. Okay, but when you do the surgery, are you removing the part of the brain that, that where the seizures originate, or what does the surgery involve? Well, that's a very good question because up until recently, I'd have said, yes, we take out the seizure focus so the seizures go away. However, there's a newer form of therapy that uh, has been uh, just very recently um, utilized, not only at our campus in Florida, but at the other sites as well, called laser ablation. We're using laser surgery to not remove, but actually use uh, heat to thermally eliminate the seizure focus uh, by a minimally invasive procedure. So now there's a couple of different surgeries that we're talking about, both the removal as well as the ablation using heat. Wow, it's pretty incredible what you're able to do. So basically you're telling us that for patients who fail drug therapy and have epilepsy, you have some surgical options where you can actually ablate or remove the site in the brain where the seizures are coming from. That's exactly right. And, you know, I always tell my patients, now is a good time to have epilepsy because we have new drugs, we have new surgical techniques, we have new devices that can be used to help them fight their seizures. Yep, I love that statement. Now is a good time to have epilepsy. Well, never, no, n- there's never a good time, but at there's least now, yeah. Dr. Tatum, uh, neurologist, Florida campus, Mayo Clinic, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.